0: As we begin our time in God's Word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we know that your Word is truth. Lord, we've already talked about how we know that your Word is effective and goes forth into all the world and calls people to yourself. Lord, we pray now that as we study from your Word, that you would do that very thing to us and that you would work through the preaching of the Word to draw men to yourself, that you would edify us build us up, and that we might trust You more. Father, I pray that You would give me the strength to speak and to preach as I should. pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 again. We're going to look at the last half of Romans chapter 3 as we continue through the book of Romans. We've been studying that uh, passage by passage, taking it pretty much a verse at the time as we go through that. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 31 today as we consider another way of righteousness. So if you would, take your Bibles with, and turn with me to Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through, 20, uh, through 31 and let's read that together. Romans chapter 3 verse 21, God's word says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means On the contrary, we uphold the law. So this morning, I want to do something a little different than I have over the past few weeks uh, in in giving certain points that we're going to go by. But instead, I want to consider what I think is the foundational point that Paul makes in all of the book of Romans. If you want to summarize the, the point of... Paul's uh, uh, book of Romans in just two verses, you would find that in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And so I want to focus on verses 21 through 26 today as we come to understand this foundational point that Paul's going to spend the rest of Romans really working out. And we're going to keep coming back to this idea of another way of righteousness. We're going to come back to that time and again. So remember, Paul has already established that uh, that God is working out his wrath or he is revealing his wrath against The unrighteousness of man. And in the last passage we looked at from Romans chapter three, from the beginning of Romans chapter three, Paul concluded in verse 11 that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks after God, even if he's a good law abiding Jew, even though he might be a pagan who thinks that he is all wise and and has the secrets of the universe in his hands, regardless of who he is, there is none who is righteous, no, not one. Both Jew and pagan stand condemned before God. So now Paul makes a turn, finally, over the last three chapters, we've been negative every Sunday, and it's pretty heavy stuff to preach every day about how much of a sinners how, many, how bad of a sinner we all are. But Paul finally takes this turn, and there's this little ray of hope that begins to break through in his teaching. He says in verse twenty one that there is a way of righteousness that comes apart from the law, though the law and the prophets actually reveal this way of righteousness. The way of righteousness that Paul's talking about that comes apart from the law is one that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a good student of the Old Testament law, you might want to pump the brakes a little bit here and say, well, no, wait a minute, Paul. I've read all 600-and-something laws in the Old Testament. I've, In my Bible reading plan, I've drudged through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and I've been a faithful Bible reader, and I've seen that there are a lot of laws, and there are a lot of consequences for those laws. A lot of those consequences are just plain and simple death. Yeah, I understand that God's law carries with it heavy punishments, For disobedience. So how can it be that there is a different way? How can it be that there is a way that is revealed in the Old Testament that is a part apart from the law? There's another way of righteousness, though, that runs throughout the Old Testament. There is a way of righteousness that is revealed in the Old Testament that we tend to miss because we do get bogged down in those 600 and something laws. We do get bogged down in the do's and the don'ts of the Old Testament and we miss another thread of righteousness that is revealed right there on top of the rest of those laws. And so I want to look at three places today where there is another way of righteousness that shows up. So consider three different stories with me today of this other way of righteousness. All of these are going to be familiar to you. There's no real reason to turn to all these places. But I would encourage you, if you get the time this afternoon in your Sabbath reading, to go back and reference and read these stories because they do help to support What I'm saying this morning. First, remember in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, we pick up at the end of the ninth plague in the ten plagues that God revealed or brought against Egypt as he is trying to get Pharaoh or or working Pharaoh to submit to let God's people go. And remember, God has just Uh, Sent darkness over all of Egypt for three days and he sent Moses in to ask again that Pharaoh let his people go and Pharaoh again has refused and so God warns that there's one last plague that is coming and he instructs Moses to gather all of the Israelites together for one new ritual that he's going to give to them that they're to keep throughout all of time from this point forward. They are to take a young spotless lamb, they're to slaughter it, drain its blood, and they're to take that blood and splatter it on the doorpost of their houses. And God warns that he is going to send a death angel into Egypt to take the life of every firstborn child in all of Egypt. But when the death angel sees the lamb, uh, the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorpost of a house, he will pass over that house. Now, with all the other nine plagues, and you can go back and check me on this and read that story. But with all the other nine plagues of Egypt, God protected the Israelites in fact, if you go back to chapter 11 and you read about the ninth plague, you'll find that darkness fell over all of Egypt except in Goshen, where the people of God were. But there's something different about this tenth plague. With all the other plagues, the people of Israel are, are protected from their effects. But with the tenth plague, the Israelites were just as much at risk As the Egyptians, if the Israelites did not act in faith to trust in the sacrifice of that spotless lamb, then their firstborn would be taken alongside those of Egypt. So fast forward a few hundred, a few thousand years. And a man named John the Baptist is standing on the banks of the Jordan River. And he looks up and coming down the river valley is Jesus and he's coming towards him. And in John chapter one, verse twenty nine, he tells his disciples that are standing around him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. You see, the blood of that spotless Passover lamb that covered the sinful people hidden inside each of those homes pointed forward to the blood of the Lamb of God who would cover our sins so that we might escape eternal death in hell. Second, in Numbers chapter 21, the people of Israel grew impatient, wandering in the wilderness, and they began to grumble against God. And Moses and they make the worst complaints. I mean, the Israelites were just terrible complainers. And they would say, Now remember, they were in slavery in Egypt. They worked their fingers to the bone. But every time they you find them complaining in in the wilderness as they're wondering, they always say, You know, I think we had it better in Egypt. Now, really? Did you really? You know, I mean, all of your all of your firstborn children were killed by a Pharaoh. Did you really have it better? You were you were tortured in the way they worked you to death. Did you really have it better? But they complain to Moses and to God that they had it better in Egypt. And so God sends snakes into the camp of the Israelites. Now for all you women, that's the worst possible punishment y'all could have had. But he sends snakes into the camp and they bite people and people die. And the people begin to, to moan and wail and ask Moses to do something to heal them. And so God, Moses prays to God and God directs Moses to take bronze and from that bronze to make a snake. And to put that snake on a staff and to raise it up on the hillside so that people can look at it. And everyone who looks at the snake, or the bronze snake, will be healed of the bite of those snakes in the camp. So again, thousands of years later, a religious leader named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And Nicodemus knows That for all of his outward righteousness, he still isn't worthy to inherit eternal life. He knows that like those Israelites in the wilderness, he has been bitten by a curse. Not the curse of a, a, a literal physical snake, but the curse of sin. He knows that he cannot be good enough, so he comes to ask Jesus a question, and in the midst of answering the question that Nicodemus actually never gets a chance to, answer, uh, to ask, Jesus tells him in John chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the third thing, the third place that we find this other way of righteousness is in Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus chapter 16, again, we find the Israelites grumbling for lack of food. So God sends miraculous heavenly food called manna. And with this miraculous bread, God gives some commands. The Israelites were to collect only enough for their daily need. If they stored more than a day's worth of manna, then it would, it would spoil and it would stink. But on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, they were to collect two days' worth so that they would have enough to eat on the Sabbath without having to work. And the whole time that they journeyed through the wilderness, more than 40 years' worth of wandering, God daily provided manna wherever they were. For the people of Israel. So again, thousands of years later, a crowd would gather to listen to Jesus teach. Jesus would look up and recognize that they didn't have any food because they were in a wilderness. And so Jesus would miraculously provide bread and fish for 5,000 men, not including their women and children. The crowd were so amazed by this that they began to follow Jesus around, begging him to feed them again. And so in John chapter six, verses 32 through 35, Jesus told the crowd, it was, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. And then Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, with all three of those miracles of the Old Testament, I want you to notice three things. And we're going to go back to Romans chapter three to see these three things. For first of all, in all three of these Old Testament miracles, God rescues his people, even though they have nothing to bring him in return. In the situation of the Exodus, the people were slaves in Egypt, helpless to do anything to free themselves. And God rescues them, even though they have nothing to offer him in return. In the story of the snakes that bit them, they were completely helpless, in fact... They were grumbling and that's the whole cause for what brought on the judgment of God. And then in the manna in the wilderness, they were unable to grow anything, unable to have any food of their own. They were unable to bring anything to God to offer that he might rescue them. And yet God does an act of grace for them regardless of their position before him. So notice back in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, Paul says that there is a way of righteousness that is by God's grace as a free gift. Like the Israelites, we all have been bitten by the curse of sin and we will surely die as a result. And just as God showed mercy to those grumbling Israelites in the form of a bronze serpent so God shows mercy to us through His Son. Second, in all three of those Old Testament uh, miracles, God is the one to do the work. In the same way, Paul says in verse 25, Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Now that's a big word, propitiation. Don't ask me to spell it, even though I've got it written here. (laughs) Propitiation means that Jesus has swallowed up the wrath of God for our sins. God's wrath, as we've already seen in Romans chapter 1 and 2, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And I shared this analogy uh, Wednesday night. I'll share it again here because I, I just think it's so poignant. It comes from my, my favorite preacher, John Piper, who says that imagine that you are standing below the Hoover Dam. And all that wall of, of water that is held back by, uh, on Lake Mead is there before you in that can- and you're down in the canyon below all that wall of water held back by that great dam that we built back in the early 1900s. And as you're standing there, all of a sudden a, a fissure shows up in that dam and a crack shows up and the water begins to spew out. And before you know it, there, the dam has burst. And that hundred foot, to I don't know how tall it is, but the gigantic wall of water is barreling down that canyon towards you and right before it hits you and you are helpless to do anything to avoid the all of that pain and suffering that is barreling down at you. Right before it hits you, a great chasm opens up in front of you and every bit of that wall of water is swallowed up to the last drop so that not a speck, not a bit of the mist of that water touches your your face. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us in saving us from the wrath of God. He in his righteous sacrifice on the cross swallowed up every drop of God's wrath for our sin. He is our propitiation. Just as God showed mercy to those grumbling Israelites, just as He has given us, uh, like the Israelites, uh, the, a lamb to take away our sins. So Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Like the Israelites, the hot breath of the death angel would consume us in judgment. But for the Lamb of God, that has been splattered on the doorposts of our hearts. So, finally, in all three of those Old Testament stories, the grace and the work of God were received by faith. So, Paul says in verse 26 that God has shown himself to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in in Christ Jesus. I love this phrase. This is an amazing phrase that God has proven himself to be just and the justifier in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God has proven himself to be just because he has judged sin once and for all on the cross of Calvary. But in Jesus, God has also proven himself to be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God is right to declare you right. He is right to say to those who have received by faith the promise of Jesus Christ, he is right to say, you are right before me. You are. Are righteous not because of what you've done not because you were perfectly obedient to the law not because you showed some outward effort to be obedient to the law but because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone in other words God is right to declare us right because of faith in what Christ has done. And like the Israelites who trusted that God would prove, uh, would provide enough food to meet their need for the day, we are called to trust that God will provide eternal life through his son. So friend, Paul has the right of it in Romans chapter 3 verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short Of the glory of God. You cannot be good enough for God. And if you seek to walk in the way of the law. To make yourself good enough for God. You will break yourself against the purity of God's law. But there is another way. Trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you through His death and His resurrection. Be saved today through this way of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the righteousness that comes through faith is something that we must take up daily. Remember, your righteousness doesn't come because you somehow have made yourself worthy. The Israelites were not worthy of God's saving grace In in Egypt, they were not worthy of that bronze serpent that Moses made and raised up. They were not worthy of the manna that God gave to them. But God, in his grace and his good free gift, gave them that salvation anyway. And you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, did not start by faith and will end by works, but you will start and end by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in verse 27, boasting is excluded by the law of faith. Our right standing before God is a result of God's grace and His work. May we rest in His mercy as we live for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this way of righteousness that is apart from the law, though it is revealed in the law. Father, I pray that we would trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation and that we would rest in his righteousness alone as our standing before you. Father, bless us now as we respond to you in faith. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.